Our call to worship this morning comes from the letter to the church at Rome. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is a fulfilment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And now let us come to God in prayer. We pray together. Creator God, as we meet to worship you, we pause to remind ourselves of the wonder of the world of which we are part. And in particular, we focus our thoughts on the context in which we find ourselves. This city in the west of Scotland. We thank you for the rivers that run through our city, for the picturesque Kelvin meandering through the botanic gardens and on to meet the mighty waters of the Clyde as it heads seaward. We thank you for the proud history of shipbuilding and industry on this once proud river and for the diverse visitor attractions that endeavour to regenerate and revitalise its banks. We thank you for the parks and gardens that offer places of play to walk and to relax. We thank you for the vision of those who ensured that, as the urban sprawl extended, green spaces were established and preserved. From the fossil grove to the necropolis, Queen's Park and Bella Houston, to the small play areas serving blocks of flats. We thank you for the academic institutions of our city, stretching back over several centuries as a seat of learning and discovery. And as we recall the names of famous men and a few women enshrined on the gates of the University of Glasgow, we remember also those who work in nurseries, schools and colleges, teaching a new generation. We thank you for the many businesses and industries still active today, each bringing paid employment and contributing to the wealth of our city. As we call to mind such areas as the Merchant City and the Financial District, we also recall the challenges of those areas where poverty and its consequences are very real. We thank you for the many different communities that make up our city, and especially those where we each live. We thank you for robust tenements that have withstood the test of time, and for the new schemes and private developments which are called home 
by the people we meet each day. Loving God, we thank you that you've drawn each one of us to live in this unique and special city. From different nations, diverse Christian traditions, and with varied hopes and fears, anxieties and aspirations. We thank you that we have found a welcome in this community of faith, endeavouring to walk with Jesus under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. As we worship today, and as we listen for your still, small voice, may we do so holding in mind the wider community of which we are just one small part. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning Bible reading is, uh, will be read from Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 14 and then from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 1 to 13. Let's hear the word of God. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 14. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them his command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had this, after he said this, he had taken up before he had said after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, hid, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when he suddenly, when suddenly two, uh, two men dressed in white, in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into, into heaven. Then they returned to, to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The second reading is from uh, first from Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses one to thirteen. 
Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing, and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your heart into God's love and God's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourself know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and touring so that we could not be burdened to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to, to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some, of, we hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Amen. For a number of weeks now, we have been reflecting on this idea of active waiting, about the way we live our lives in the meantime, in the here and now, without either trying to return to a romanticised view of the past or deferring everything to some dreamed-of future when the time will be perfect for us to act. We began several weeks ago now by thinking of the parable of a farmer who plants seed and then goes and gets on with life until such time as it has grown and produced seed. Reminding ourselves that far from empty time to be wished away, the meantime is an opportunity to be valued and employed This parable is one of the many rather strange kingdom parables that serve to remind us that we cannot engineer or preempt God's kingdom. Rather, it grows and flourishes pretty much unobserved as we get on with doing and being whatever it is that we are called to do and to be. We then went on to look at some of the characteristics of a meantime spirituality that I thought would be healthy and helpful. We considered the idea of present-mindedness, living fully in the here and now, rather than procrastinating or spending time wondering how long it'll be until God just gets around to fixing everything. We recognised the need for gratitude and specifically thought of the Jewish Dayenu concept of sufficiency. If this is all we have, then that is good enough. If this is what God chooses to bless us with, then so be it. We also reminded ourselves that our life together gives us opportunities to learn to trust that God is with us in the meantime. 
And we recognise that to walk in step with God's spirit has two dimensions to it. Neither do we lag behind, nor do we run on ahead. But it's not always quite so easy to be sure which of those we might be doing. And last week, we allowed part of the story of the Exodus to inform our thinking about the potential of a time of apparent wilderness wandering to actually give us the space and time to build and order a more healthy community, better equipped to face the challenges of the next phase of its life. The possibility of reviewing structures of administration and patterns of worship, as well as fostering deep, caring relationships were things that we highlighted. But we also noted that there is a danger that a strong community has to be alert to the pitfalls of insularity and exclusivity into which it so easily could fall. We've covered a lot of ground in that time, but there is still one more direction we need to look. In a sense, we have looked upwards to God and inwards to ourselves, but we also need to look outwards to the world of which we are a small part, and specifically to think what mission and ministry might look like in the meantime. That shouldn't surprise us, this need to look out at the world. Because we know all too well what Jesus said. That we should love God and we should love our neighbours as we love ourselves. And we are also, at least most of us, very familiar with the story that we know as the Good Samaritan. A story that should shock us because it reminds us that those neighbours may not share our nationality, our beliefs, or our values. If I'm honest, of the three focuses, this is the one where I've had to work the hardest to find suitable scripture in which to ground my thoughts without resorting to something cliched like the Great Commission with which the Gospel of Matthew concludes. I wasn't looking for a mandate to tell us what we're called to do, because quite frankly, we already know that. What I was looking for was some hints and glimpses of how that worked out in reality in some of the early churches. And that's why I chose the beginning of the book of Acts and an extract from the second letter to the church at Thessalonica. Biblical scholars very often treat the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as two volumes of a single work, and that makes complete sense. Each one of them is addressed to Theophilus, and Acts is clearly described as being the second book. At least by implication, it actually says, in my last book, so clearly this is the next book. So why is it that this author felt the need to write part two? None of the other gospel writers did. But for some reason, Luke writes part two. 
So what's he trying to achieve? Unlike the gospel, the book of Acts isn't neat and tidy. It doesn't have a nice ending. It almost fizzles out if you read to the end of Acts. And we're left with Paul under guard in Rome. We're kind of left hanging. There's a kind of to be continued at the end of the book of Acts. So is it possible that maybe this complicated and fascinating book gives us a clue about mission and ministry in the meantime? I think maybe it does. The book starts where the gospel ends with the ascension of Jesus. But it's not simply a repeat of the earlier material. It's not like when you watch the television and they show you the exact scenes from last week's episode. It's slightly differently. We get a new dimension to the story. Jesus' followers have been told by him to wait in Jerusalem until such time as the gift he has promised has been received. We know that as the Holy Spirit. The disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, "Um, is it now that you're going to restore Israel? And I think that probably means what they're actually saying, is it now that you're going to drive the Romans out and give us our land back? And Jesus says, no, or maybe not yet and tells them it's not for them to know about times or dates that God has set. Rather, he says, once you have received the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in the wider context of Judea, the foreign land of Samaria, and even to the end of the earth, which we know, roughly equated to the Roman Empire, which was the known world at the time. So end of the earth continues to literally the whole world. Are you going to give us our land back? Is the question that they are asking. And the answer to that is no. And in any case, I can't tell you What I want you to do is to tell other people about me in the place where you are. The place geographically and historically where you are located. And then he just left them, hidden by a cloud, gone. Can we place ourselves in that story, or in a similar story anyway, asking the same kind of questions? Is now the time, Lord, when you're going to give us, well, whatever it is we think that God has promised us, or, if we're more honest, what we would like God to give us? And what does Jesus say in reply No, not yet. Because God isn't going to give us a nice, neat timetable with a date on it. Rather, like these early people, we're told to stay where we are 
and get on with the work that God, through the Holy Spirit, has given us to do. I never tire of what I see of humour in this account. This group of men staring perhaps with their mouths open into the sky, wondering where Jesus has gone, rooted to the spot, unable to make head or tail of what's just happened. And two men in white appear with an equally mysterious message and the scene reaches its closure. What are you doing looking at the sky? You'll be back. And in those words, the now and the not yet of God's kingdom work, the work of the followers of Jesus, this active waiting of working and sleeping, working and sleeping, this meantime of mission and ministry is expressed. And so they went back to Jerusalem and they waited until the day we know as Pentecost when they experienced a movement of God's Holy Spirit in a new way that empowered them for the work to which they had been called. We know where that story goes. It's familiar territory for us. We know it was a 40-day wait until the festival at Pentecost. But the disciples and those who waited with them didn't know if they were waiting 40 minutes or 40 years. They simply had to get on with the waiting time, doing what they understood that Christ had told them. And now, we fast forward something like two decades The work of witnessing in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria is well underway. Local churches have sprung up all across the Roman Empire, thanks in no small part to the work of the Apostle Paul. As we read that extract from the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, we are still within one generation of Christ's life. The eyewitnesses are still living. And those words he'll be back soon are still active in the minds of those who followed his teachers commentators on the letter to the Thessalonican church seem to be agreed that this church had not really understood its own role of mission and ministry in the meantime and people were just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back He's coming back soon, so we better not do anything because we might miss it if we're not sitting, waiting, patiently, doing nothing. It was bad theology then, and it's bad theology now. Our task is not to sit back and wait to be rescued from the world, but rather to get on with the business of being witnesses in the world the task of savouring the world, of preserving it like salt, of lighting the world, of being like that city on a hill. For how long? Well, however long it takes until the work is done. 
Now, I think it's fair to say that this is not a church where we sit endlessly on our bahookies, as people say up here, staring heavenward, wondering when Jesus will come back. It's not an idle church at all. But the danger of missing the point is just as real for us as it was for the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, however you say it. Are we fulfilling our call to be witnesses in Byers Road, in Glasgow, in Scotland, and to the whole world? Are we being salt and light in the diverse contexts and communities of which we are part? Do we live out day to day the love of God and of self and of neighbour? The danger of idleness is not just concerned with what is not done, the church in Thessalonica is told, but also the potential for misplaced energy. It's a lovely play on words that's there in the Greek and works also in English. The people are accused of being busybodies rather than of being busy of being people who are far more concerned with criticising what other people are doing, of poking their noses into other people's affairs, rather than getting on and playing their part in the mission of the church, the mission of God. I was hunting this week for the expression, the devil finds work for idle hands. It's not in the Bible, It was St. Jerome, evidently, who said it. But it's a phrase we use a lot in everyday speech. Energy that is not channeled into creative, life-giving and life-affirming activity has a habit of drifting off into activity that can be destructive and damaging. You know, sometimes when we look at the list of behaviours that the New Testament letters describe as sinful, there is a real risk that we slip into the sin of careless, lazy finger-pointing. You're doing something that's wrong. And you're doing something that's wrong. And we miss what is written very clearly. Gossip, slander, rumours mumbling and grumbling, dissensions, factions, those are as unacceptable to God as licentiousness or immorality. How easy it is for any or all of us to slip into judging and criticising and grumbling and finger-pointing, all of which are on those lists of sins. We need to do well to keep in mind the words that Matthew said, we should not judge others lest we ourselves be judged. Or perhaps the words from John, that only the person who is sinless is free to punish other people. What, you may ask, and rightly, has any of that to do with mission to do with our relationship with the world out there where there is so much to give us real concern, much that contradicts our understanding of the kingdom of God even. 
it seems to me to suggest that we can never settle just for watching what's going on in the world and shaking our heads and sighing and criticising other people out there for what they do or don't do. We are called to love the world just as God loves the world. Pretty much every day I will get a letter or an email asking me to get involved into some worthy Christian activity. Endless requests for money to alleviate poverty or disease in faraway lands or close at home. Requests to write letters to my Westminster MP or my MSP or both on all kinds of different political topics. And invitations to training courses and events. And I expect many of you are the same. And certainly for us as a church, this is true. And sometimes this endless opportunity for good work can be paralyzing, can actually lead us to do nothing. How can we choose? How do we decide what to do? You see, I think if I'm honest that sometimes we as a church are a bit paralysed when it comes to mission. There are so many good things we could be doing, but on the whole, we don't do all that much. We give very generously to financial appeals. That's great. And then we kind of talk vaguely about being salt and light in our workplaces, but it feels sometimes that it is a bit vague and talky. What we find much more difficult, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, if not more so, is to be missional on our own doorstep. As we reach the end of our exploration of meantime living, it does us no harm to remember why we're here in this place. Back in 1873, a small group of Baptists felt a call to establish a work in an area of the city that was just beginning to develop. Over the years, this church has offered a welcome to people of all types and conditions, and it has courageously explored complex and controversial topics, acting like the grit in the oyster of the Baptist Union. And it has served this community, <coughs> excuse me, and it has sent out missionaries all across the globe. A really strong history of integrated mission and ministry. So as we move forward into tomorrow, we need to remember that when one day we do have our lovely new premises, we haven't arrived. We can't sit down and put our feet up and just go, oh, this is lovely. Because it's actually still part of that same now and not yet of God's kingdom. There is still work for us to do in mission and ministry in Hillhead, in Glasgow, in Scotland, until the end of the world, until either... Christ returns or Christ 
calls us home. It's been a long series. That was a long sermon. But we together walk into that future knowing that God is with us. Amen. This is where I do my Ken Fisher impression. Unfortunately, Ken is unwell and not able to be with us today, so I'm leading the intercessions. And I'm using a pattern of prayer from the Second Intercessions Handbook, which uses the image of ripples to help our thoughts. Let's pray together. Imagine for a moment that our prayers are like the circles in a pond made by throwing a stone into the water. The smooth surface of the pond is broken as the stone drops in, and we see the first circle emerge. In this circle are the people with us here in church right now. Around us are the members of the family of God, people we know well or with whom we have shared many Easter's. These are our special brothers and sisters on the road to God. We need each other. So let's pray for the people alongside us now, those beside us, around us, in front of us. Silently, let's pray for each other's well-being as fully as we know how. The circle spreads. Look now at the second circle. Here are the people living around this church in the wider community. Our cities and towns depend on the teachers, the local politicians, the postal workers, the checkout staff at the supermarkets. We would be so much poorer without the charity workers the bank clerks, the gardeners in the park. These are the people we see, but don't often register, let alone pray for. Who stands out for each of us in this second circle, now that we stop and think of it? Who needs our prayer right now? And what might they need from a God who loves them?
the circle spreads again. Look now at the third circle. People with a national profile. People we see on television. Political leaders. Sports people. Celebrities. Criminals. People who are famous for a day, though may be hurt for a lifetime. These are often people under colossal pressure. Who have we seen like that recently? So many to pray for. So let us each choose one or two people and hold them up to the embrace and mercy of God who has so much to give. The circles spread right out. They reach the far edges of the pond. One after another, they lap against the banks. Out here is the struggle of our whole creation to live up to God's glorious purposes. There is where prayer, science, poetry and politics all meet. For this is where God's will is done or not, where God's kingdom comes, or not, on earth as it is in heaven. Here, God is constantly urging his world into freedom and wholeness. Let us gladly align ourselves with the God who serves and saves this world. Lord God, our prayer this day is only like a stone thrown into a pool, a tiny offering in an ocean of need. Please take our prayers, along with the prayers of millions of others, and bring about your purposes of love, healing and hope to the very edges of the world. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It seems only one way we can end this series and this service, and that is to share the words of the grace with each other and look at each other, because we're not always so clever at that, and then to turn out, as we do from time to time, and pray that same blessing on the city. If anybody's not sure of the words, they are on the inside back cover of the hymn book, and they're the first one under benedictions. And then we will have a sung Amen, Paul, at the end of the second edition of the prayer. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen.